if you'd turn your pew Bibles there to 1 John 5, and uh, I'm going to read here. We got, I'm going to read, uh, starting in verse 6, the passage for today. I think it's about 1053 in your book there, near the end. Okay. Uh, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Join me. Lord God, we just give praise to you, and we want to unravel the sometimes confusing passage. We pray, Lord, that you would give me wisdom in trying to be as clear as I can, and that you'd open up hearts of those that are here to, to hear this message and to listen to the testimony that's given by these witnesses. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Christy and I, uh, you're going to have to do it, Chad. It's not working. There we go. Okay. Yeah. The, the main idea we've got here today is that those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, have witnesses of that fact so that they may be assured of their salvation. Uh, Christy and I uh, facilitate a class of high schoolers that's kind of a combination of apologetics and rhetoric and evangelism. And we have two main goals in that class. The first one is to solidify or fortify the faith of these young people who are about to go out into a world that will challenge everything that they've been taught about God and the Bible. And in turn, our prayer is that they will then have the courage, the boldness, and the confidence to answer questions and clear away the brush that prevents certain people from seeing the cross. And in that uh, course, we will sometimes show a movie. And the name of the movie is Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed. Now, near the end of the movie, you're going to have to do it, Chad. You got anything? Okay. Near the end of the movie, uh, We'll just go on. <laughs> There's a, uh, the movie's produced by a guy named Ben Stein. And uh, Ben is a Jew, but he's one who's favorably disposed to a Christian worldview. And near the end, he interviews, here we go, 
a man named Richard Dawkins. And Dawkins is one of the current primary atheists that, uh, that dominates the culture today. And uh, he, as part of this, just says, Doc, to Richard, how do you think life began on earth? And Daw Daw Dawkins kind of stumbles a little bit. He says, well, I suppose it could have been an alien traveler who came here a long time ago and seeded life on earth. And then Stein kind of muses to himself, you know, here we have Richard Dawkins, a champion of a universe and life without cause, without a creator, without any purpose, admitting that he actually does believe in an intelligent cause, just not God. And in the process, he fails to account for the beginning of that alien life. He just kicks the can of causation down the road. That's all he does. Uh, and to conclude the interview, Stein just kind of gets personal with him and says, Richard, listen, you've made a lot of money telling people that there is no God. What if, when you die, you come face to face with your creator? What are you going to say? And Dawkins doesn't skip a beat. He immediately goes to a man named Bertram Russell who was a 20th century atheist philosopher who wrote, you know, why I am not a Christian, pretty clear where he is. And when he was given that same hypothetical question about surprisingly meeting your creator when you said there was none, Russell said he would ask, sir, why did you not give me better evidence? Now, I doubt that's what Russell did, but that's what he said when asked. Now, our, uh, our high school class students know that there's not only solid logical and philosophical arguments, but many scientific evidences for the existence of God, and extra-biblical, historical, documentary, and archaeological evidences for the authority of Scripture. Now, the problem with convincing people like Dawkins and Russell is not the evidence. There is plenty of evidence. The problem is the hardness of the heart. Now, there's another author by the name of Paul who wrote a book called Romans, and he said that the evidence for the existence of God through God's creation is clearly in front of those who suppress the truth, yet their hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Charles Spurgeon said that Christianity makes some very lofty claims which are rejected by millions of mankind. Now, to justify such high claims, the gospel ought to produce strong evidence, and it does. It does not lack for external evidences that are abundant. So, in our passage today, wrong way, John gives us a kind of a courtroom. Some of you may recognize this courtroom if you're old enough. Uh, and in a courtroom, it's vital to establish facts. And a fact-finding project involves logic, and it involves physical evidence, but it also involves witnesses. And witnesses to the fact give the trier of fact, or the judge or the jury, 
that which is needed to determine what happened. Uh, for the witnesses to be helpful, their testimony must not only be credible, but it also consistent with the testimony of other witnesses. Now, witnesses may have completely different perspectives, but it's vital to your case to not have them conflict or contradict one another uh, when they testify. Martus is a Greek word for testimony or testify, and John uses that Greek word ten times in this short passage of about seven verses today. And the fact that John is trying to establish here is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, as he stated in his gospel, where he said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as the only of the, of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So to help convince the triers of the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, John uses six witnesses from different but complementary perspectives. So if you're on a jury, some of you have perhaps served on a jury, and you hear six witnesses for a particular fact, maybe coming from different perspectives, wouldn't you give some credence to that testimony? The first three of these witnesses appear in verses 6 through 8, which I'll read right now. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the water and the Spirit and the blood, and these three agree. Now, there are various interpretations of the terms water and blood, and we're not going to get into those today. It's not worth our time. So I'm going to give you what several solid commentators uh, believe and what I think uh, is the best explanation here. Uh, John's first witness, I believe, is the baptism by another John, the Baptist, of Jesus which is recorded in all four Gospels. And the account in Matthew 3 reveals the Trinity. It says there, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, think about this. The interesting thing about the baptism of Jesus is that if there was ever a person who did not need to be baptized, it was Jesus. Yet he did so, so that he could identify not only as a man, but with all of us as sinful mankind subject to the same temptations. So you could say that Jesus no more belongs at his baptism than he belongs on the cross for our sins. And in his gospel, John records the explanation of John the Baptist. When he saw Jesus approaching, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So that witness of the baptism of Jesus includes, as one of its supporting witnesses, John the Baptist. Now, 
If water was the baptism, you might have guessed that the blood represents his, his, his crucifixion. And the baptism is what started Jesus' earthly ministry, and his earthly ministry ended with his death when he said, it is finished. Within this witness, there are several other evidences and witnesses. And Matthew 27 records the darkness that appeared in the middle of the day, the tearing of the veil without human hands, uh, an earthquake, and saints who were long dead arising and appearing to many. And then there was that Roman centurion who was in charge of this detail for execution uh, who said, after witnessing all this, and all these things happening around him, he said, truly this was the Son of God. But Jesus had his early critics who said that he was just a man to whom God gave a special mission and then abandoned him on the cross. And there are those today who reject the redemptive value of his death. And they use other arguments, but to the same end. Uh, some say there's really nothing special about the blood of the cross, and others say, yeah, this is really cosmic child abuse. Uh, and others who put forward a therapeutic gospel in which they use the example of Jesus to promote the general welfare of others and to make them feel good for the moment. You know, and for, for that purpose, you don't really need Jesus to be the Son of God or to, for him to call us to love his Father. But the Bible says otherwise. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And later he implored them to be his ambassadors because for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The third witness is the Holy Spirit. And I want to say here just a little note that there is some question as to whether verse 7, for there are three that testify, is in the original, the autograph of John. Uh, it does not appear in some of the earlier manuscripts, but it really makes no difference. Verse 7 says three testify. Verse 8 says three agree. Verse 6 tells us that the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. Therefore, we can conclude that the Holy Spirit as a witness, is consistently and continuously truthful. Jesus said that when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The Holy Spirit is the revealer of truth. And there are several verses on your study sheet. The Holy Spirit is specifically mentioned in key points of the life of Jesus at his conception, his baptism, his temptation, and his ministry in general. Now, Mark 3 discloses the interconnection between the Son of God and the Holy Spirit. And there, Jesus casts out demons, and he's being accused of being out of his mind uh, by casting out demons by the power of the prince of demons. And Jesus astutely points out the illogic of this, Satan casting out Satan, but then he goes on to bluntly accuse the scribes of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit for saying that his miraculous works were of Satan. And this certainly implies that the Holy Spirit provided the power for these miracles. In 1 John 8, verse 8, the order may be significant. It says the Spirit and the water and the blood. Uh, so it is the spirit that testifies through the water and the blood and all agree. 
that Jesus is the Son of God. And this agreement is important from a judicial standpoint. In Deuteronomy 19, we've got a standard of proof when using witnesses to establish a guilt for a crime. This is the basis of our current standard in criminal cases of beyond a reasonable doubt for conviction of a crime when the consequences are serious. It might be loss of freedom by going to prison or even loss of your life for capital punishment. It is simply too easy for one witness to lie without confirmation from others. So to protect the defendant, we have these safeguards. The lawgiver says that the accused in Deuteronomy 19 cannot be convicted of a crime on the basis of the testimony of a single witness. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. And to establish facts in most civil cases today, non-criminal cases today, the standard of proof is a, a preponderance of the evidence. So if the question is, who ran the red light? You know, all you need is 51% of the evidence on your side, and you will prevail to some extent. However, here, with the fact it is not in a criminal context at all, God's word uses the highest standard of proof. And even though John meets the higher standard of proof, he does not stop there. There are more witnesses that we find in verse 9 and 10. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he was born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. So John next calls to the stand other than God the Father. He uses an argument we've often talked about here at Lion Lamb called a fortiori. If we believe the lesser of the witnesses, we should certainly believe the greatest of witnesses. The most important quality of a witness is his or her credibility. What better witness is there than the one who cannot lie? As the writer of Hebrews tells us, it is impossible for the creator and the giver of all truth to lie. Now, God's testimony here was born concerning his son. It includes the testimony of the previous witnesses, the Holy Spirit, baptism, the crucifixion, but it also includes the explicit words of the Father. Uh, in Matthew, he records the testimony both at his baptism that we read earlier in chapter 3 and also at the transfiguration in chapter 17. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. With whom I am well pleased, listen to him, listen to him. Now, no person can be neutral about this statement of God. The testimony is subject to the law of, ex of the excluded middle. That is, a fact is either so or it is not so. One may claim to be agnostic about this, to not know that Jesus is the Son of God, but if God says so and a person does not believe it, he's essentially calling God a liar. So Charles Spurgeon said, it is blasphemy to suppose that he would mislead us. The gospel with God for its witness cannot be false. Whatever may be witness against it, the witness of God is greater. We must believe the witness of God. On the other hand, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God 
and to, is to believe the testimony of the father about his son. There is no middle ground for indecision or neutrality. You either believe it or you do not. I think I'm off here. Let me see. There we go. The next witness that he calls is our conversion. In verse 10 it says, whoever believes in the Son of God has a testimony in himself. The inner witness tells us that Jesus is the Son of God. And Paul says that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. I mentioned earlier that in court, while you have different witnesses that have different perspectives and that it is crucial that they not contradict one another, it's even more helpful if the witness confirm or support one another. In other words, they may testify about different things, but if they can say, yeah, I believe, I agree with that other witness there. And we call this corroboration. The genuine believer has this testimony in himself, and it confirms, it corroborates that he or she is a child of God, as we see in verses 11 and 12. The internal testimony corroborates the external testimony of the baptism and the crucifixion of Jesus. And all of these witnesses are corroborated by the Holy Spirit and the Father himself. Paul then connects this internal witness in ourselves with the external witness of our testimony and our confession in our conversion. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That's in Romans 10. Now, there's a practical application that should not be missed. And I want to set this up. You've got to st stay with me here. Uh, we need to take a step back and compare this to a related but distinct issue. We're talking in this message about Jesus being the Son of God. Uh, let's go to the issue of the existence of God. There are various worldviews out there. Okay? One, of course, is atheism. And it's got lots of subsets like relativism and naturalism, materialism, uh, uh, you know, humanism, and they say that there never has been any God over man. There's also a thing called pantheism that says all is God and God is all, including this building, including this lectern, including you. Everything is God. Now, Christianity falls under the general category of theism, which is also uh, the category that Judaism and Islam fall under. And Christians hold that God created all, acts and moves in the lives of us today, with omniscience, omnipotence, perfect justice, mercy, grace, and love. But there's another worldview between theism and the others mentioned, and that is deism, the belief that God or a supernatural being created the universe, then went away and stopped working. And this happens to believe what some scientists have come to when they take an honest look at the evidence for the beginning of the universe and life. And they see they really have no other explanation, so they come to believe, yeah, there must be a God or some sort of intelligent being who started all this. And frankly, you've got to admit, that's an improvement, okay? See, what we're seeing happening there when they come to that conclusion based upon scientific evidence is that they've moved away from atheism and their hearts have been softened somewhat. They're not saved by believing that, by believing there's a God, but at least they believe that something had to start the whole thing. 
and that's a point of common ground. Now, the reason that I'm off on this bunny trail is that deists believe in God who acted only in the past tense. In a similar way, some look at salvation in the past tense only as an isolated experience which guarantees salvation regardless of what happens thereafter. Now, this can sometimes be a well-meaning, innocent misunderstanding of what Scripture says, but in a sense, it can be dangerous. There we go. Think about this. Let's say you lead a young person or even an old person uh, to pray the prayer. Then you blurt out, praise God, brother, once saved, always saved. Is it not possible that that person then thinks to themselves, wow, this was easier than I thought. All I got to do is say the prayer. And when I'm done with this guy, I can go back to everything I was doing before because he told me I'm saved. Well, again, you and I can't determine whether somebody's saved or not. We have to be careful about that. We can interpret evidence, but it's not our call. But we have to be careful about how we use that. So once saved, always saved is, I think, misinterpreted. I agree with it. But it's not simply mouth a prayer and get a get-out-of-hell-free card. Rather, it's, it's a statement that says, once we've started our Christian walk by our confession, by our repentance, and then we have started with Jesus and we love him, and then we know that inevitably we're going to stumble in that walk. And when we stumble, when we confess and repent, we are still saved. It's an admission that Christians are not perfect, but forgiven and saved, despite intermittent sin. John does not say whoever believed past tense, rather it's believes. We talked about this last time, how that verb is present and continuous. Paul did not say if you confess with your mouth at some point in the past that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that some time ago, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Yes, your confession and your belief started sometime in the past, but you will know, you personally will know it was genuine if it continues to the present. I know that many people, when they hear the gospel and they hear these phrases, it ingrains in them. So I know there may be some confusion. So if you are confused, please come and let's talk about it. That's fine. There's a final witness uh, that John calls in verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. So the final witness that he calls to justify and prove the deity of Christ is eternal life. Now, you might object to that witness. We can't cross-examine that witness. That's not here. We can't see it. We can't experience it in this lifetime, in this courtroom. Well, the point John is trying to make here is the connection between having the Son and eternal life. This kind of refers again back to the Sunday school, that, the excellent Sunday school that, that Bill taught this morning. We are all made in the image of God, and he is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, 
perfectly just, righteous, pure, merciful, and perfectly loving. But we're not God any more than what you see in the mirror is actually you. We are an image of God. One might say it's like comparing the three-dimensional character of God with the measly two-dimensional character that's us. Yet despite, and this is important, despite our imperfections, despite our failings, despite all the things that we will do wrong after we're saved, we have the privilege to spend eternity with our Father. That is a distinctly God-type quality. He is eternal. We get to share that with him. Is there any greater privilege? And it only comes by Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So to have the Son is to have eternal life. On the other hand, to not have the Son is eternal spiritual death. Again, this is the law of the excluded middle. You either have the Son and eternal life, or you do not. Now, Genesis 1 starts off with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1 starts off with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he continues, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And John then reveals that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now the book we're studying now, 1 John, starts off with that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Clearly what John is trying to make clear to us is the big picture. And he has this amazing ability to tie together the biggest picture of the Bible of all of life. The plan of God from the beginning displayed to us through Jesus. He presents to us the witness of eternal life in the Word, the light, the very Son of God. And this is not something we should just gloss over by singing about the sweet by and by and then going on to the next hymn. There is nothing more important in this vapor we call life than where we're going to spend eternity. Eternal life Speaking to the older folks here, is, I'm sure not like was portrayed in the old cartoons. You know, you've got the cloud, you've got the cherub, you've got the halo, and you've got him strumming the harp forever. Okay? I don't know exactly what it's going to be like, of course. But I do know this. It is not going to be boring. We will be in his presence to worship and adore him forever. My words are totally inadequate to communicate the majesty, the significance, the magnificence of his testimony. What John is saying here is that it's impossible to have eternal life without Christ, just as it is impossible to have Christ without eternal life. 
So in a nutshell, the testimony of this last witness is only he who is eternal can give to you and me that which is eternal. So to wrap things up, let me ask you a question. Just think about this. Don't anybody volunteer an answer. Are you a convicted criminal? Are you an outlaw? I am. I have shared before that by the time I was 18, I was in jail or police custody at least three times that I can remember. And I came from a really pretty good family, okay? Uh, especially my mom and my sisters, they provided a good foundation. We went to church and all that. Uh, but I found my way into trouble. And thankfully, because of some of those influences, I stayed away from some of the problems that my peers had, like death by drug overdose or suicide or drunk driving. But even if I had kept my nose a little cleaner or been completely clean, I would still be a criminal. You see, I only escaped physical death as a young person. Spiritually, before salvation, I was a walking dead man. And I'm sorry to say this, but that could be said of all of you. Even if you never committed any crimes, never got a traffic ticket, never hurt anybody, I guarantee you have all violated God's commands, at least in your heart. So you see, our experience tells us what the Bible says about mankind is true. James tells us, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Paul in Romans 3 tells us that none of us is worthy of eternal life. None is righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because he is perfect purity, perfect righteousness, none of us can attain that standard on our own. But thankfully, God is not only perfectly just, but he's perfect love. He provides a way for those who believe that Jesus is his son, who lowered himself to mankind and paid the price for our sin. So we started this message talking about courtroom and evidence and witnesses and trier of fact. And the question arises, well, who is that trier of fact? And if you paid attention, you know, you might have noticed that the witnesses called by John are probably not the kind that would convince hard-hearted skeptics like Bertrand Russell and Richard Dawkins. But I think John wants you and me to see that there is no room in the excluded middle precisely because it is excluded. All must and do make a decision, either intentionally or by default. Charles Spurgeon explains that all that we need to do to be saved is believe the testimony of God concerning his son. This is, as we have discussed, a belief that is genuine and it persists to the present. And quoting Spurgeon, God's testimony concerning his son is at first believed simply because God says so and for no other reason. And then there grows up in the soul other evidence, not necessary to faith, but very strengthening to it. Evidence that springs up in the soul as a result of faith and is the witness referred to in our text 
He that believes has the witness in himself. So John, in the course of writing so that we may know we have eternal life, is doing what we're trying to do in our high school classes, give his children evidence through these witnesses that Jesus really is the Son of God. And so you and I can be secure and have that testimony in ourselves, which will in turn give us confidence to testify, to be witnesses to others. So if you look at the, the bottom of your, of your handout there, there's a couple of questions right above the for consideration section. And I would urge you to look at those passages and just answer those two simple questions to yourself. All it takes for you to be saved is to genuinely believe. If you would, rise and read with me a couple of passages out of Romans 3, or a passage out of Romans 3, as the worship team comes up. Here we go. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation for his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus.